You know, you never know what the crowd's going to be like on a summer Sunday. You surprised me. A lot of people are here, and that's great. Good for you. I'd like to uh, welcome everyone, uh, especially our guests. Uh, If you're a guest here this morning, uh, I want you to note that I am not the regular speaker. I am uh, Mike Duffield, serving as an elder here in the congregation. And so it's going to be a little unusual today, which is not unexpected either. Uh, The Gruens, of course, are on a vacation. I do have to ask one question of you. Does anybody have bandaged fingers? No, no 4th of July people that went out crazy and burnt themselves. Very good. You guys are so polite and so nice. That's great. Well, this morning, uh, things work. There we go. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter. Just uh, as a forewarning also, I'm going to be speaking next week. So I don't know what your plans are. But anyway... uh, (laughs) Just joking. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about First Peter, and I'm going to cover it, just dip into it in a couple places. Uh, in, in This morning, we're going to look at the first chapter plus a little bit, and then uh, next week, we'll look at a little different part. In 1987, a band called U2 released a song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Very popular song, did very well in the charts, nominated for awards, uh, and seemed to strike a note with an awful lot of people. In fact, if there are people of my age, slightly younger, maybe a little bit older, maybe you're humming the tune right now to yourself. It's understandable. It's very catchy. It It brings something. It says something to us. But the fact is that that song touched something in a lot of people's heart. It was something they could relate to. A lot of people in the world are searching for something. They're looking for something. And I can tell you that the cry you often hear is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And it's an understandable cry. I think God has instilled in us the desire to seek him out. And until we identify it as God, we have a real hard time. And I think that the big picture is this, that the thing that we're all looking for is what I characterized as the hope of heaven. We want to live our lives in hope that there is something going to happen. There's going to be a better thing going on. And First Peter uh, does that in so many ways. First uh, Peter, of course, is a very general letter sent to a, a group of churches in what is now the region of Turkey. Uh, but what he does is he addresses what they can do to help make their lives better, what they could do to firm up their foundation, if you will. Uh, and he deals with a couple of topics. Submitting is one of his topics. Suffering is one of his topics. And the whole idea of holiness what it means to be a holy person as a Christian. And what you'll find in 1 Peter also is something very interesting in that a lot of 1 Peter can be found in a lot of the other scriptures that we have, in the New Testament especially. So he's echoing a lot of what he has 
read before, and other people are echoing what he has to say. So in a lot of ways, these are foundational things that we're looking at in First Peter. And the thing that I want to do is I want to cut right to the action. Okay, I don't want to read all the preliminary stuff if I don't have to. So I'm going to take us to the next spot. Here we go. We're going right to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And let's read that uh, to get us into what Peter is really going to talk about. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. At this point in the letter, Peter is calling everybody to action. He wants us to be doing something specific. Prepare yourself, be self-controlled, set your hope on this, do not conform. These are all commands, if you will. They're action words. These are the things that we're supposed to be doing. So when he writes to these people, he's writing very specifically, though, to people that he may not know directly, but he knows of their situation. So let's do a kind of uh, identify who it is he's writing to, which is basically the first 12 verses of the letter. Some important things here for us. He starts off by identifying the people that are reading this letter as elect. They have been selected by God. He also calls them strangers, or in some translations, uh, aliens, if you will. Uh, that's not exactly... Uh, an interest, uh, the best way to, to describe somebody, but there's a reason for that. Uh, he calls them um, exiles, that they are chosen, they're prepared by God, that they are obedient, and because of that, they have gotten their salvation uh, pure and made right. And we need to stop for a second and talk a little bit about this whole idea of uh, Peter identifying them as resident aliens or as aliens. Uh, it's an interesting word. Interesting choice of words there. Effectively, what he's saying is, you guys are homeless, okay? I'm writing this letter to you Christians, and you're a homeless bunch of people. You don't have citizenship anywhere. And there's a likelihood that you are subject to some kind of abuse or oppression. That's not necessarily a good thing in anybody's life. But Peter is doing that on purpose because he's recognizing what's going on. Now, historically, there's no reason for us to believe that they are being physically oppressed. We know that there were no real persecutions going on in that region in Turkey at the time. But in spite of that, he kind of wants us, I think, to see something that's less literal and more dealing with, with the idea of oppression or abuse as a metaphor that they were having a hard time. They were probably being talked down to. They were probably being shunned in a lot of ways. And, and the other thing about this is when you think of uh, aliens or resident aliens, uh, it's something we can also identify with. Later in the letter, Peter talks about uh, the whole idea of peop these people as being slaves. Well, the reality is they're not all slaves. So does that mean that they can't understand what he's talking about? No, it's really a metaphor. 
And it's talking about the slavery that we too have and they should identify with as Christians. We are slaves to Christ if we're going to lay it out straightforward. Um, William Barclay, a theologian, 1907 to 1978, had this to say about this idea of being a resident alien. He said, the Christian does not despise the world, but he knows that for him the world is not a permanent residence, but only a stage upon the way. The resident alien was a man who came to stay in a place without being naturalized. He paid an alien tax, he was a licensed sojourner, and he stayed in some place, but he had never given up citizenship of the place to which he truly belonged. Well, where is that place that we identify as being truly belonging to? It is to heaven. We really truly belong there. This is not our permanent home. So that's, the real, that's really the beginning of what Peter has to say. Now in verses 3 through 12, Peter talks the whole time about salvation. Talks a lot about it. Makes a strong point. What is salvation and why would he spend all that time talking about it? Well, salvation is the whole idea of the redemption of your sins. It's the whole idea of being delivered from the sins that you really have. And in the, in the idea of salvation, he brings up several things. First of all, we have a guarantee. Jesus has guaranteed that we have been delivered from our sins. We are now capable, because of what Jesus did, we are capable of being sin-free. We are now also very much aware that uh, the, the salvation that we have is permanent. It is not transient. It doesn't go away once we sin again. We turn back to God after our sin, and we can be cleansed. And it's a wonderful thing. And then he assures them that not only is your salvation uh, permanent and powerful, but it is in heaven for you, waiting for when Jesus returns. In other words, there's going to be a permanent time when you'll be completely and fully delivered from sin. That's very good news. He characterizes the thing that they ought to have because of that as living. It's a living hope that they ought to carry with them, which is kind of an interesting idea. Uh, the idea of a living hope as opposed to hope I think it's an active thing. It should be active in our lives. We should be living as though we are hopeful people. And that's a positive, good thing. Uh, he uses the idea of living in inanimate things uh, later. In chapter 2, he talks about Jesus as the living stone. And then he talks about Christians as living stones. So there's this element and this idea of the things and the beliefs and understandings that we have are to be active in our lives. And if we're unable to make them active in our lives, maybe we're not paying attention. Maybe we're not doing what we're supposed to do. So what about what else about salvation? He picks up another thought in there. Salvation he characterizes as being joyful. We ought to, when we recognize the fact that we are saved, we're redeemed from our sins, we should be joyful. It's actually an outward expression. It is not something you just hold into your mind and, and think about it, but you should actually be willing to be joyful and it should be reflected in your life. But the caution, of course, in real life, there's going to be trials. Things will happen. It's not always going to be an easy journey that we're on, even though we are these resident aliens. 
there's also going to be side effects. If we reflect on our salvation, if we reflect on our redemption of our sins correctly, recognize that and we will be joyful. Okay, we'll be joyful and we will experience an increase in our understanding of who God is. Our faith will be increased. And we're going to have a love for God that we did not have when we first started out. He's actually asking the people who are reading this letter to say, take a long view of life. Take a view of life that looks out at the bigger picture. Don't worry so much about the details. At the end of his uh, talk about salvation, Peter does another thing that's kind of interesting. He says, by the way, the prophets didn't get it. If you don't get it, I understand. The prophets didn't get it either. They didn't understand that the Messiah was going to have to suffer. They didn't understand that there was going to be grief that takes place, that a death would have to take place, or that the result would be glory in some way. They didn't get it. But they did understand one thing. In all their searching, they understood that none of the things that they were reading about were going to take place in their lifetime. But they did the research anyway. They did it for the future, not for themselves. Interesting idea. And I like the little tag that he puts on at the end of verse 12. He says, by the way, even the angels want to know about this stuff. Right? Even the angels want to know. I don't know why he added that, but I like it. I like it. So Peter, in the beginning of the book, in the beginning of the letter, lays out who they are, where their hope is, and he clarifies what their salvation is based on. It's based on Jesus and the sacrifice that he has made. And that creates a foundation which brings us back to here. We come back to here now, and Peter says something very interesting. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert... This is an NIV translation, and it's a later NIV translation. Some translations say, preparing your mind for action. Uh, I think that's an interesting translation as well. I'm going to look at a couple of other uh, translations. Preparing your minds for actions, and then gird up the loins of your mind, the New King James. And then there's an expanded translation by Kenneth Wust, which says, having put out of the way once for all everything that would impede the free action of your mind. Wust is basically taking all the meanings of the word and expanding it out so that it uh, expresses the whole idea. And if you have ever studied First Peter before, you've seen this idea, right? Girding the loins of your mind. Uh, it's actually a word that's based on a word which I can't pronounce, something like anazonomi or something like that. Uh, and it has to do with the idea of a runner tucking all of his garments underneath his girdle or belt so that it doesn't get in the way when he's running. Year, years ago, of course, at the time the letter was written, people wore long robes. And so if you were doing uh, hiking, a lot of work, or running somewhere, you would tuck your robes under a, a girdle or your belt so that your legs would be free. What does that have to do with your mind? What, you know, what are we talking about? Well, he's obviously not talking literally. Right? We don't have garments hanging around in our heads somewhere that we can tuck away. Instead, what he's really saying is deal with the loose ends in your mind. Deal with the things in your mind that 
keep you from doing what you need to do. We have them. We all have them. We have distractions. We have things that bother us. We're preoccupied by something. He says, correct your wrong thinking. If you think you understand some things, but in some way it bothers you that you, you're not sure, fix it. Gird your loins. In other words, prepare yourselves. Go back and, f- and read. Go back and pray. Go back and listen to what other people have to say about what is going on, about what you believe, about how it affects you. And here's the part that I think is the one thing that's very important that we should take away from this. Get rid of the things that are unimportant. There are probably bits and pieces of stuff that you that are just keep that keep bothering you, that keep distracting you. If those things that are bothering and distracting you keep you from running the race you're supposed to be running, get rid of them. Throw them out. Just take care of it. It's not subtle. It's not supposed to be subtle. It's an action. Why do we want to do this? Why do we have to do all this? And how do we do this? Well, he says this interesting thing. uh, He says, remove them by the word of God. And remember that the word of God shows up in many forms. It shows up in scripture. It shows up in Jesus himself. We know that he is the word. It shows up in our prayers. Use all of the things that you have available to get rid of distractions so that you can actually do what you want. If we don't, we choose to allow things in our minds that hinder our successful walk with God. Do you really want to be wearing dress shoes when you're running a race? I don't think so. Do those cowboy boots really help you to run faster? No, they don't. Wear what's appropriate. Get yourself ready. Do the things that you really need to do to make yourself able and capable of taking the journey that you're supposed to be on. Therefore, prepare with minds that are alert and fully sober. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Eugene Peterson uh, writes a paraphrase of this, and he puts it this way. So roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil. Doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. And I love the way he phrases that in paraphrase energetic and blazing with holiness, a fire in holiness. Wonderful thing. Well, let's move on. Since you call on the Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are also in God. Now we see in this passage the repeat of the idea of the resident strangers uh, still coming up, or the resident aliens, if you will. What is he really saying in this uh, short couple of verses? Look, he's saying your life was not bought with paper money. It was blood that was spilt. It was a life that was given. Your redemption is sure. It is pure. It is right. And it is enduring. That's very important. And he's telling us we should live that way. We should live as though we understand this. Not as though it's new to us. Not as though it's a strange thing. Peter goes on this way. And he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. He ties obedience to purity in this passage. Very interesting thing. In other words, as we obey what God has told us to do, we're making ourselves more holy. It's something that is tied to that. As we recognize God's holiness and obey his truth, we become pure. Our reaction is not our work, but it is a response to Jesus' work. It is a response to the gift that was given for us. Uh, being pure is not an end into itself. Being pure makes us into the vessels that God needs to do the work that has to be done here. And I love that he says this phrase, uh, love one another deeply from the heart. I think that only by obeying and being pure can we truly love from the heart. By obeying and being pure can we truly love from the heart. This should remind us, of course, of John 13, where Jesus tells his followers, love one another. And the purpose of that is so that others can see that you are my people, that you are my little Christs here on earth. He gives us this idea now, uh, at the last verse here, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And he's creating a contrast, which we're going to pick up in the next couple of verses. The contrast is this. Some things that we take on will not last. There are other things that will last. There's a contrast. Pay attention to what those things are. The hope that you have should be in things that will last, not in things that are temporal or temporary. And then he says, 
For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. In one sense, he's talking as though he's a grandparent, and he is probably three years away from the end of his life at this point. But he's, it's as though he's talking from a grandparent to a grandchild. He's giving them advice, hoping that they can grasp and understand the meaning. That comparison is the finite grass and the eternal word of God. Finite, eternal. Jesus is living and enduring. He stands forever. He is our foundation. Again, I want to look at Eugene Peterson's translation because he does some funny things. He says, that's why the prophet said the old life is a grass life. Its beauty is short-lived as wildflowers. Grass dries up, flowers droop. God's word goes on and on forever. This is the word that conceived the new life in you. God's word conceived new life in you. And therefore, you should find joy in that. You can almost hear Peter saying, don't you worry about the short-term things or the trials or the sufferings. Don't worry about that. You've got God's word. It's going to go on forever. Of course, when I look at the, uh, the imagery of the grass and the flowers, my, thought, my first thought was to go back to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about the grass and the flowers of the field. And he makes a, uh, a whole context of the passage all about uh, the idea of worry, that we're not supposed to be people who are worried. And I found an illustration, which I want to share with you today. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy, and I'm going to have to read it. Uh, but I think it's a very important and, and poignant uh, for the point we're trying to make here. A psychologist walked around a room while teaching stress management management to an audience. As she raised a glass of water, everyone expected they'd be asked the half-empty or half-full question. Instead, she said, how heavy is this glass of water? The answers from the audience range from 8 ounces to 20 ounces. She said, the absolute weight doesn't matter. It depends on how long I hold it in the air. If I hold it for a minute, it's not a problem. If I hold it for an hour, I'll have an ache in my arm. If I hold it for a day, my arm will feel numb and paralyzed. In each case, the weight of the glass doesn't change, but the longer I hold it aloft, the heavier it becomes. She continued, the stresses and worries in life are like the glass of water. Think about them all day long, you'll feel paralyzed, incapable of doing anything. It's important to let go of your stresses as early in the evening as you can. Put all your burdens down. Don't carry them through the evening and into the night. Remember to put the glass down. Peter is telling us, focus on the things that are important. Put the glass down and live for the eternal things, not for the temporary things.
Well, we're going to finish up just a few minutes here. But I want to look at what Peter starts in the second chapter, which you don't really have to care about whether it's a chapter or not because it's a continuing thought. He says, because of all that you've read before, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Because you understand what your salvation is, that you are redeemed, that Jesus is continuing to work for you and on your side, because you understand that you should be focusing on the eternal and not the temporal, do something. And look at that list. Oh my. Get rid of it. Toss it out. Like those garments that you're not supposed to be letting hinder your race. Get rid of things like malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And some of these things are not just actions that we do. He's not saying just get rid of the actions, but get rid of the things that in your mind act like this. These are not just things that we necessarily do, but these are things we think about and we carry with us for much too long, much too long. Paul says the kind of same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, in verses uh, 22 through 24, he's got the list in the back and the, uh, the comments about it in the front, but it's the same idea. And he's really looking at the whole idea of don't replace, uh, don't get rid of the bad things without replacing it. And what are you supposed to replace it with? What does he say here? Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, Right? Now, in Scripture, we, we see milk showing up in a variety of forms. In this case, uh, it's called pure spiritual milk. milk. This is, again, the NIV uh, that I'm reading from. Some places call it pure milk. There's a couple of other variations. But Paul uses it differently, and I don't want you to confuse these two. When Paul talks about milk, he talks about it as though it's a weak and, and simple thing for people who are, who are not where they should be. They're not mature yet. But Peter's taking a different stand. He's calling it pure spiritual milk. Some translations call it the pure milk of the word. And then the American standard calls it the spiritual milk which is without guile, which is kind of an interesting uh, turn of phrase. And I want to go to C.H. Uh, Spurgeon here, Charles Spurgeon, to see what he had to say about this. I think it's good stuff. Newborn children have no malice. They have no guile, no craftiness. They have no hypocrisies, nor envies, nor evil speakings. Let us be as simple as little children, as guileless as harmless, as free from anything like unkindness as newborn babes are. Let us desire ardently, as for our very life, the unadulterated milk of the word. Let us cultivate that combination of hunger and thirst which is found in a little child, that we may hunger and thirst thus after God's word. We've done more than taste the word. We have tasted that the Lord himself is gracious. Let us long to feast more and more upon this divine food that we may grow thereby. And uh, I've always thought it was interesting, the, the passage, he says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, and some translations will say that the Lord is kind or something like that. But
But if you go into the root of the word that shows up as good here, it actually means delicious when it's related to food. And so I really like the visual imagery of that. Uh, my resolution has changed for some reason on my monitor. Um, go and taste that the Lord is delicious. I like the phrasing of that very much. Well, what are we to make of all this? Here's what the story is. Uh, Peter understands who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of people who are, uh, for whatever reason, needing encouragement to be reminded that they are not of this world, that they are actually people who are looking at an eternal overview of life. He's also talking to people uh, that need to respond to the sanctification that they've had. The fact is that they have been redeemed by Jesus because of his work, because of his blood, and they're now in a better place than they have been. And so they need to respond to others with that knowledge ahead of time. Um, he, also under, he also makes the point that uh, he knows who they are because they're making a transition. They at one time worshipped multiple gods, and now here he is asking him to focus on one. Uh, they put their hope in this one God. They put their hope in Jesus Christ, and it is a reminder of the hope that they are to have about heaven. It's something that we should also take with us as we do the things that we do as people and followers of Christ. Uh, well, this is as far as we're going to go today. Next week, we're going to look at what Peter has to say and how he encourages the people in times of suffering. A very difficult time for anybody, but especially so as Peter looks at uh, the situation that they have. Well, we have a... Uh, an invitation, we always make an invitation because it's important uh, as family that if you have a need, that if there are things that you want to bring before the congregation and we can pray about them or you want to have a conversation about baptism, we're willing and we're open to talk about those things. But I'd like to encourage you to come forward as we stand now and sing the song that's been 